Hello and welcome to the Humankind Podcast, brought to you by Humanist Society Scotland. I'm Ali Thompson, the Director of Dignity in Dying Scotland and your host for the podcast. Dignity in Dying believes that everyone has the right to a good death, including the option of assisted dying for terminally ill, mentally competent adults. We've been campaigning to change the law in Scotland and this month a bill introduced by Liam MacArthur MSP that we've supported alongside our coalition partners, Humanist Society Scotland and Friends at the End will be consulted on by the Scottish Parliament. This podcast will focus on why we think the law on assisted dying needs to change in Scotland and presents the views of a range of people who support the bill. To start the podcast, we're handing over to award-winning Scottish novelist, non-fiction author and Dignity in Dying Scotland patron, Andrew O'Hagan. In 2020, Andrew released the novel Mayflies, which, amongst other themes such as friendship, looks at assisted dying. Andrew was inspired to write the book after the experiences of his terminally ill, lifelong friend. Hello, this is a thought for the day. I'm Andrew O'Hagan, author of Mayflies. A bill to legalise compassionate and safe assisted dying is now in front of the Scottish Parliament. Scotland must now ask itself, if we can lessen suffering, pain and fear, why shouldn't we? Why wouldn't we? If we care about the way we live, we should also care about the way we die. No matter how good modern medicine and care is, The hard truth is that some people will suffer unbearably as they die. I know firsthand the problems our current law creates, the difficulties and the difference that assisted dying would make. How much better it would be to allow people to die well, at home, surrounded by their family and loved ones with a sense of dignity and control, rather than force them to travel to Switzerland or some other place at great expense to stop eating and drinking, to take matters into their own hands or continue to die in anguish and agony. My questions for MSPs who are grappling with this and uncertain of how they will vote is simply this. What would you want for yourself and your own loved ones? And why should you stand in the way of other people's choices? It's not the Scottish way. We are an enlightened country. For while a person's death is undoubtedly personal, how we're allowed to die is political. We have a blueprint for a new approach to death and dying, one that is safe and compassionate, tried and tested. It is imperative that our politicians act on it. They have the imagination, they have it within them. Thank you, Andrew. Now we hand over to Fraser Sutherland of Humanist Society Scotland and Reverend Scott McKenna. Scott has publicly supported assisted dying legislation for over a decade and was involved in the late Margot Macdonald MSP's attempts to introduce assisted dying legislation in the Scottish Parliament. Here, he and Fraser discuss how Scott balances his religious beliefs with his belief that assisted dying for terminally ill adults should be allowed in Scotland. 
much of your support for assisted dying is driven by your your faith or your, or your religion? As a person of faith, God and Jesus are central to my life. They're a very present reality. They're part of my consciousness. And when I think of the, the divine, when I think of Jesus, I think of love, compassion, tenderness, abundance, dignity, respect, humanity, humaneness. And I bring that to my support for assisted dying legislation, at least in some forms, for those who are um, terminally ill and uh, obviously mentally sound. For me, assisted dying legislation is centered on the relief of suffering and the avoidance of indignity. It's an honoring of humanity, and that's why I support it. What's your feeling about people of, of your faith? Obviously, you can only speak with people maybe within your congregation or your movement. Is that a mixed bag within people that you've met in the church? It's a hugely mixed bag, and you probably know that there is a religious alliance in support of dignity uh, in death. Um, so I would say that across society, so across Christianity um, and peoples of other faiths, there is a spectrum of views. There are a number of prominent Christians who very publicly support assisted dying legislation. In my view, uh, it seems to me we do have a say in the shape of our life and death. Um, Christianity is committed, has a good record of being committed to dignity in life. And that uh, passion for dignity in life should not end a few months before you die. And of course, some say that in choosing an assisted death, we are playing God. And that's sometimes one of the criticisms that we hear. Uh, I would say that's correct. We are playing God, but that's the way God wants it. As far as I'm concerned, we're made in the image of God, which means that we have rational discernment. We are moral decision makers and we're to use our intuitive faculties and that we're empowered in this way to make decisions, uh, including decisions of life and death. It's the way God wants it. I mean, obviously, from a perspective of a humanist background, we would argue that individuals inherently have a right to control their own bodies. For me, one of the most striking things about the debate around assisted dying is that even with the best palliative care, that we can offer, even with the best expertise that we have, we still know that there are too many people who suffer at the end of their life. And I think that's really shocking that we say to them, well, you just have to suffer, essentially. Have you ever had any kind of experiences, you know, in your kind of parish and in, in your role in your parish of where someone's had a loved one suffer a bad death or even perhaps someone who's facing, you know, a, a terminal illness and, and has kind of maybe had this question in their mind about um, about an assisted death. Have you ever have you ever spoke to anyone from that perspective before? I've been present with people who have had a death that they would not have wanted, mm -hmm. um, and which has involved suffering. It has involved pain and it has involved suffering. And I've heard so many times, many many families say of their loved ones, "She wouldn't have wanted this," yeah. or "This is not him." And, and this, you know, this is not good enough really I mean it, it really isn't and in a faith community like mine I suppose I would say that pa part of my pastoral role is to is listening uh, deep listening uh, to people being present with others in their suffering offering tender sensitive prayer 
but supporting people where, where I can. But being at the bedside, this for me is the litmus test. Being at the bedside when someone is suffering intolerably is, is just not, it's, it's horrendous. Also, um, even where, as you know from other countries, even where uh, a person who has um, been allowed to have an assisted death, if they then choose not to have it, uh, very often that permission that they're going to get that option, that medication has brought an enormous peace yeah. to the last few months. And that's worth a lot, even though they don't actually opt for it in the end. Yeah. My experience is that um, some is often is that people are not afraid of death. They're afraid yeah. of dying. Yeah. They're afraid of suffering. What the evidence shows from other jurisdictions is actually it's people who have had a lot of control over their life. They're the people who are most likely to access this as an option because I suppose they're scared about losing that, that level of, of, of control. And autonomy is a central feature of dignity. Have you had any conversations about assisted dying with parishioners who would oppose any changes to the law? And, and what, what's your experience been of, of that? I mean, over the years, I've certainly had many conversations with members of the wider church community, let me put it that way, yeah. um, who are opposed to assisted dying. There's no question of that. In my view, there is a fear of the slippery slope. Um, there are concerns, genuine concerns, um, over disability and the abuse of legislation. There's also a genuine hesitation on grounds, not of faith, but of holding doubts about getting the legislation right, framing the legislation. I would say to them is that it's a nonsense, as far as I'm concerned, a legal and moral nonsense that people can travel abroad yes. for an assisted death. Um, but they can't have an assisted death here. I suppose the other thing I would say sometimes to people is that the word suicide, I think, is unhelpful. It was used the last time by Margot MacDonald, and I, I didn't really support that, but um, she preferred the word suicide because she said it showed very clearly who was making the decision. And I understand that. But the pastoral experience, I think, would be that people who commit suicide want to die. Whereas many of those who are opting for an assisted death do not want to die. If they, if they weren't terminally ill, yeah. if they weren't suffering intolerably, they would not want to die. It is a different thing. You obviously have experience from the previous attempts to change the, the legislation that, that Margot um, championed. I mean, how do you think that this bill from Liam MacArthur will be looked differently? Do you think it will be looked on differently from the Scottish public and by parliamentarians? I hope so. I think, um, as far as I'm aware, um, there is substantial support in the public for assisted, death, assisted dying. There is support, substantial support, I understand, in the House of Lords, and there is growing support um, in the House of Commons. And, um, you know, it is an issue of our time. And it's not going to go away. Uh, and I do hope the new intake of MSPs will face this. It will require a good deal of courage and they will have to scrutinise the legislation and so on. But I do hope they recognise that there is a direction of travel here and, and they need to face that. Thank you, Scott and Fraser. Much of the opposition faced by previous attempts in Scotland to change the blanket ban on assisted dying have been from religious groups and organisations, so it is really helpful to hear the views of a religious person in favour of changing the law. Please note that the next segment of the podcast comes with a content warning. 
It includes graphic descriptions of a traumatic death and the grief and trauma arising from this. If you think that this might be too difficult for you to listen to just now, or if you're listening within range of younger listeners, please jump the podcast forward to the next segment. Next, we listen to a conversation between Edinburgh sisters, Victoria, Sarah and Zoe, as they discuss the death of their mother, Heather Black, last year from esophageal cancer, and why her very difficult death has led them to campaign for the legalisation of assisted dying for terminally ill adults in Scotland, should they choose it. Mum was um, a campaigner, an activist, a community worker, a mum, obviously, as well. But yes, she was a kind of pioneer in our field of um, HIV, AIDS and drugs counselling in the 80s and 90s. So she started off in, in social work and social care and then continued her career in creating a, um, a kind of a safe space for, for addicts initially um, in Pelton and Muir House, um, but she was one of the, the first people to, to get needle exchange um, into Scotland. And yeah, just um, an incredible legacy that, that she's left behind in our, in our work life and in her personal life. Um, she was very social, um, definitely a social butterfly. She loved to travel um, and she wouldn't just go to a kind of regular hotel. She would go on these mad world adventures and stay with families in Cuba or mm. go off to Thailand or um, her last trip. Um, she was due to go um, with a, a lifelong friend to Istanbul. So she was, yeah, it was, she was always kind of travelling. She would uh, she would go on family holidays as well with my sisters and the grandkids. Um, and yeah, she was just, she just loved life. As a mum, she was quite a character and uh, me and my sisters are, are quite strong characters as well. So luckily having uh, three daughters, um, there was always one of us that was speaking to her at one point. Um, so there was a lot of uh, lot of falling out, a lot of arguments, but a lot of um, incredible family meals and fun times and laughs um, and yeah, really special moments. My mum hadn't been very well for a few years and she would choke and um, she used to go into the hospital and have her gullet stretched so that she could eat food. When she was going in to get the operations to stretch the, um, the esophagus, she, her uh, consultant had asked or had said that she really needed to get a biopsy because it looked like there was something um, not quite right going on. But she would put it off and put it off. So eventually she agreed the next time she went in to get that done to have the biopsy. And she was getting the test results on the 6th of March. So I was there with her and it was over the phone and they said that, you know, it was a tumour. Um, so she was sort of asking in the background while I was speaking to the consultant, how long have I got? How long have I got? Um, and that was just before lockdown. So I think we got her out of the hospital the day before lockdown um, and we brought her home. Um, that Yeah, that was around about the 6th of March. And the consultant had said to her, you know, maybe a few months to a year. From the diagnosis on the 6th of March to going back in a couple of weeks later to have the, the stent fitted to sort of the week after realising that had, the cancer had then spread to her lymph nodes and her lungs. She was getting a lot of pain in her back. 
from the diagnosis, as soon as she was home on the, the you know, as soon as she was home after getting the stent fitted, she had a morphine driver from the beginning. And I think my mum had certain triggers, just, you know, that sort of facing into death. If you mentioned the hospice, if you've got a morphine driver, if you mentioned commodes, you know, so she had these like real kind of like trigger words. And I think when you're facing into a, that kind of terminal illness, those kind of things can can be really scary. My mum, you know, worked in the care um, sector for for all of her life, so she knew that when you get a morphine pump, it's it's not good. During that time where she was, you know, asleep most of the time, and when she was awake, you know, she we were able to kind of you know have some food and have the grandkids round and you know try and kind of make those memories. And then when we get to the that the kind of real end of life phase, she was starting to get into a little bit of kind of ter terminal delirium. So it was starting to get really scary. That was the point that the three of us were were there. Um, and we our consultant from um, the hospice came to see her. She died on the, the 14th, which was a Thursday. And on that Sunday, the consultant came to the house to see her. And I think there's a couple of points where assisted dying the conversation could have come in to play and you know those safeguards and safety measures and such like there was definitely points within those 10 weeks where my mum you know could have quite easily privately had that conversation about how she wanted her life to end and specifically on that Sunday speaking to the consultant and making the decision to change to the end of life meds was one of those kind of key decisions she knew that the kind of you know the the end was near. Um, I can't put it any nicer than that. And unfortunately, that change to those meds it was horrific. That was when the the kind of the real trauma hit. If you know if it hadn't been bad enough to care for her up until that point, she literally didn't sleep or settle from the moment that those meds were changed to the moment that she died. So we were up twenty four hours, getting little naps here and there her body temperature would change so she would kind of puff up and go kind of like sort of like blue and then she would be red and then you know when she was tiny and skinny she had you know lost lost so much weight and each time we thought god this can't get any worse it, it kind of did but sort of three days before she died she started to like kind of make like a really strange choking noise like a like really unusual kind of like like death, it was just the, the weirdest noise. Nothing settled her, there was no kind of holding her hand and that kind of movie death or anything like that. It was, it was just constantly, it just got worse and worse. They gave her some medication to, to loosen the, well, to kind of stop, hopefully to try and stop the choking noise or to stop the actual choking. But unfortunately, that medication then just loosened the tumour. So she um, vomited her tumour over our last probably about 12 hours, 12, 14 hours. And to manage that between the three of us was was just horrific. We It was basically, it was pieces of tumour, it was blood, it was foam, vomit. It was just, it was just horrible. Also, um, we were never given any warning of how bad it would get, although the nurses were fabulous. Nobody said to us, brace yourself, girls. This is going to get really, really rough. And at one point, the smell was so bad that we actually tied towels and dish towels around our faces as we were wiping the tumour and the foam and the vomit from my mum's mouth. 
Now, hour after hour, we had black bags full of dish towels, downy covers, you name it, any soft material that we could get, we cut up into squares to wipe this away um, and to throw them away for four days. My mum was really, really frightened. She was crying out, she was scared. She felt everything. She knew everything that was happening. And I think this is what makes it so difficult for us. And it's difficult for, for us to talk about this part. But just knowing that my mum was going through such trauma and there was nothing that we could do, it was absolutely disgusting what was left. Our mum would never have wanted to have died like that. She had, you know, she had joked on and off throughout the years saying, you know, that she had it all sorted, she had it all sus, you know, she was quite a feisty person um, and you know she wasn't to go in a care home you know we wouldn't be we wouldn't need to be burdened with her she wouldn't need any looking after and that she had it all sorted and she would be able to you know take something and that would be it so in terms of kind of bringing it back to assisted dying and choice she didn't have that choice she did choose to end her life by changing those meds but those meds then prolonged her her agony for for so long and I think it's it was so unnecessary and cruel. That's the whole thing about this assisted dying bill. That, you know, if it was your pet, you would just take it to the vet and you would put it down. Um, and the way that we're, we're allowing our loved ones to suffer right at the very end when they've made choices all their life to get married or not to get married, to go on holiday or not to go on holiday, to have kids, to not have kids, you know, and then right at, the, right at the very end when it really matters, that choice is taken away. And I think choice is the is the big thing, that hopefully you didn't have to use it. And palliative care works for you or you go in your sleep or whatever, but if you have that the kind of death that our mum had, then you deserve the choice. So assisted dying is to help the person just that last tiny bit. It's not to get rid of the people in your family. It's just not, when people say that, it's laughable. Um, if they only had been with us for one hour of what happened to our, our mum, then they would have a different story to tell and I'm sure they wouldn't be uh, fighting it. And I think it's a really poor argument when people are saying, yes, but what about um, the misuse? That's why laws and regulations and policies and procedures um, come into place. It's not an easy thing to pass. It's not an easy thing to decide that you're going to end your life. So if everybody worked together, surely a person deserves to have a peaceful, calm life, not just for the person, but for, for us and for the other family members who are now haunted, who can't sleep. But the bottom line is, people should have the right to have a calm and dignified death. Yeah. And we didn't want anybody else to anybody else to even experience a fraction of what we went through. Well, my mum went through, sorry. <laughs>
prospect of being able to end needless suffering and hastening the inevitable should be a no-brainer in any caring society. But it's not. It's counterintuitive. All those years of evolution have hard-coded in us a will to survive no matter what. But we've also evolved enough to have the knowledge of when the end is inevitable and to develop strategies to minimise and even end the suffering we have to endure. So the subject of assisted dying and euthanasia rears its controversial head once again. Full disclosure, personally I'm very much in favour of legally assisted dying. Maybe my own personal experiences and biases are clouding my judgement though, so I think it's only fair to look at the arguments against it. The primary opponents to this sort of legislation in the UK are an organisation called Care Not Killing. Perhaps they can talk me back from this ledge. Taking a look through their website, and much more tellingly, a campaign fundraiser email sent to their mailing list, the best summary I can give is FUD. Now, before you check the parental guidance rating of this podcast, allow me to explain. I'm not talking Scottish vernacular here. By FUD, I mean fear, uncertainty and doubt. It is the unholy trinity of maintaining the status quo. All you have to do is inspire enough of any of them into the minds of the decision makers and your job is done. And it's doing a pretty good job so far for care not killing. They do of course have some valid points and legitimate concerns, but it's peppered with problematic proclamations and they rely so heavily on slippery slope arguments that you'd imagine they've got shares in a ski resort somewhere. So let's take a look at a few of those. Quote, The vast majority of UK doctors are opposed to legalising euthanasia. This is simply not true. The most recent survey carried out by the British Medical Association does show 46% opposed changing the law to allow doctors to administer the drugs versus 37% who support it. So there is a majority, but not a vast one. They also fail to mention that the very same survey showed a majority of respondents favour a change in law for doctors to be able to prescribe drugs for patients to self-administer. The BMA has, however, maintained their opposition to assisted dying legislation. Elsewhere, the Royal College of Physicians' most recent poll shows a majority against such legislation, although that majority is decreasing compared to previous polls. It's been a while since the Royal College of Nursing polled their members, but their most recent one shows a majority in favour of assisted dying legislation. Both of those organisations have adopted a neutral stance on the subject of assisted dying. So, the picture is considerably less clear than care not killing would have you believe. Next quote. Inappropriate media portrayal of suicide, assisted suicide and euthanasia will fuel copycat suicides and suicide contagion. Now, portrayal of suicide and media coverage of cases can indeed have an impact on suicide rates. The phenomenon is real. However, there is no solid evidence that assisted dying contributes to this. More on suicide later. Next quote. Public opinion polls can be easily manipulated when high media profile and often celebrity driven hard cases are used to elicit emotional reflex responses without consideration of the strong arguments against legalisation. Technically true, the public can indeed be manipulated, 
However, there's a difference between manipulation and legitimately exposing some of those hard cases to the public in order to provoke intelligent thought on the topic. Realistically as well, it's precisely those hard cases that make a case for legalisation. The most common emotion that is evoked by these hard cases is compassion, which is why time after time the public has come out strongly in favour of assisted dying. Strangely enough, no statistics about that on the Care Not Killing website. Next quote. Data from Oregon, USA shows that one of the main reasons why people seek assisted suicide is the fear of being a burden on family, friends or carers. Again, technically true. It does make it on the list. But it's mid-table, sitting way behind loss of autonomy, loss of dignity and being unable to engage in activities that make life enjoyable. Even then though, it's no surprise at all that any caring individual would think like this. Consideration for others, especially the ones you love, is a perfectly natural side effect of not being a psychopath. Next quote. Research also shows that in some jurisdictions where assisted suicide and euthanasia are legal, there is a tragic correlation with an increase in suicides among the general population. The email also mentions that the suicide rate in Oregon, where there's been assisted dying legislation for over two decades, is one third higher than the US national average, and that between 2001 and 2018, there was a 33% increase in the general suicide rate in the state. Okay, everyone, repeat after me. Correlation does not equal causation. This is a common mantra in the scientific skepticism community. Let's take a closer look at this. The suicide rate in Oregon is higher than the national average. The same applies to quite a few other states in the union. That's how averages work. Oregon comes 10th in the list of suicide rates in the US. Top of the list is Wyoming, a state which doesn't have any assisted dying legislation. Now let's take a look at that 33% increase from 2001 to 2018. It's a somewhat arbitrary time span selected there. Someone more cynical than me may assume those years have been cherry-picked to give the highest percentage score, but who knows? What they don't mention is that during the same time span, the USA as a whole saw an overall increase of 29%. So once again, Oregon's above average, along with some other states, but once again, that's how averages work. There's no evidence whatsoever that Oregon's assisted dying legislation plays any factor in those statistics. That is some pretty egregious FUD rousing, if you ask me. Here's a fun stat for you. If you compare the annual frequency of Nicolas Cage movies in 2001 to 2018, there has been a 350% increase. See? Numbers can be fun. So, moving away from care not killing somewhat muddied messages and motivated reasoning, here's a few undeniable facts for you to digest. Number one, right now, even with the best of palliative care, there are many cases where people die slowly and painfully. Number two, right now, many people out of desperation are taking matters into their own hands and attempting suicide. Some of the methods are brutal, 
terrifying and can affect others, like a recent case of a terminally ill patient who deliberately stepped in front of a train. Number three, right now, we currently live in a two-tier society where people with the financial means to travel abroad to countries where assisted dying is legal can take control of how they die in the most desperate of situations. And those without those means simply have to roll the dice and hope that their suffering is not too great. So, if you're making a decision on how you feel about the subject, I would encourage you to apply your critical thinking skills and carefully evaluate all the evidence. Cast your net wide. I'd also encourage you to use some empathy though. Put yourselves in the shoes of those who have had to suffer the worst of deaths, or perhaps those of the loved ones who watched on helplessly. What would you want? Great work. Thank you, Brian. Those following the assisted dying debate will have noticed a discrepancy in Brian's facts. At the time of recording, the BMA had an opposed stance to assisted dying. But after a vote on the 14th of September, their position has changed to neutral. This is great news for those in favour of legalised assisted dying. And Brian's fact-checking crown remains in place as he was correct at the time of recording. Scotland is not the only country that's seeking to address the question of assisted dying. And in our final segment, we hand over to Frankie Bennett and former MSP Marco Biaggi as they discuss the lessons that Scotland can learn from other countries that have successfully passed safe and robust laws on assisted dying. Frankie draws on her experience campaigning in the successful New Zealand referendum that passed with a majority, 65.2% of the public vote, and also as a campaigner in Australia, where at the time of recording, they were just days away from a parliamentary vote to see if Queensland will join the four other states in Australia that have legalised assisted dying so far. I approached the bill last time very much with an open mind. I have a very strong uh, personal ethic of the importance of life, but I also have a very strong ethic about the importance of autonomy. And I came to the view that uh, essentially the bill was a form of mercy to allow people to be in charge of their own lives and that I didn't have the right to deny people the death that they desired in uh, the extreme situations that many of them were in. It was a very emotive debate. It was very much a debate where people told very, very harrowing, very, very personal stories in a way you don't normally get in a political debate. You know, people were bearing their souls. It was very emotional. It was very emotional on, on all sides. But I ultimately voted that way because I felt it was the right thing to do. It accorded with my principles. and. I think I had confidence in the people that uh, had elected me that that was what they wanted me to do. Absolutely. I think people with knowing that it's one of your constituents. So somebody contacting an MP and being able to say, I live in your area and this is my experience with a short personal message has always proven the most effective way to influence an MP on this issue. And in fact, Often in parliamentary debates, we've heard MPs 
um, come back to these stories and, and talk about a particular constituent that they spoke to. I think the real opportunity in approaching Scotland's debate now is that there's time for individual constituents to build relationships with their MPs. So not just to be in touch once, but to very politely get in touch, tell their story, share that, which is a privilege for many MPs to be able to speak to their constituents in that way and hear their experiences and then come back in a couple of months time and say can I contact you again can we talk about this again do you have any concerns so I think the the window of opportunity to change MPs minds is open now and all campaigners can take real um, opportunity there. I think this is where the consultation process um, ahead of, of the debate in Scotland will also really pay off. Hearing detailed accounts and voices from across the medical, legal, aged care, disability, human rights sectors, as well as from individual Scots who are terminally ill and their family, hearing that range of views um, has proven really key in certainly New Zealand and Australia in building that robust evidence that MPs can then rely on a, a backbone that makes them feel safe, that this is a compassionate law to vote for that's both tailored to those who need it most and will work as intended. Um, and having that body of evidence also really helps to dispel misinformation because they can point to individuals they've heard from, you know, whether they've spoken to a hospice or a nurse or, you know, whatever it may be, um, and, and say, look, we know the scale and the size of the impact of the current law or, or lack of. Um, and we've heard from people up and down the country and they need this change. Um, and one parallel I would just draw is between New Zealand and Scotland with their similarities in population size, because certainly in New Zealand, it was really thorough. The consultation spoke to a huge part of the population because they've just got five million people. Um, and this is an advantage that Scotland will also have going into the debate. Indeed. And the Scottish Parliament is noted for having very extensive consultation processes. So it may actually be the case that people that support assisted dying and want to contribute to the consultation aren't going to be contributing to one consultation. They're going to have to contribute to several. It's very important that people realise they don't just need to make their voice heard once very quickly. They may need to repeatedly tell their story or to build the relationship right now, not with the, the people that are leading the bill or the, the committee, but with their local MSPs, those people that ultimately at the end of the process are going to have to vote for this. Something really interesting that we saw in the most recent debate a couple of months back in South Australia, successful, um, a voluntary assisted dying law passed there. We got to the stage where MPs were saying in Parliament, I would never personally use this. This is this is not a law for me. I am opposed to this. Perhaps I'm pro-life. This is this is not something I will ever make use of. But I respect the right of others and my constituents to do so, which is why I'm able to support this legislation. And I think really key to getting MPs to that place where they felt able to vote is having those personal stories, as you say, over a really long period of time and having built relationships with some constituents so that it's not just political, it's become personal. Um, and I think that's really key, that storytelling, hearing from individuals, sharing experiences.
In New Zealand, there was a referendum. So by the time I arrived, they'd already gone through the process of um, voting for the bill. And one of the conditions of the bill being approved was that it had to go to a public referendum. Now, for many people, particularly the private member who sponsored the bill, this wasn't the ideal outcome. They just wanted the law passed. But so it went forward um, as a referendum at the next election. And I think here, the measure of the campaign was really different. Rather than trying to appeal to the all-important MPs who would be voting, that part was done. And now we were just appealing to individual voters. And that's really important, that direct contact. It's a sad fact that these days, because of the abuse they get on social media, a lot of politicians simply don't look at it or don't see anything that comes from people they don't already have dealings with. And that's why, well, that's just one more reason why direct contact, email, or even the old fashioned face-to-face at at politician surgeries is absolutely the best way to get this point across. Some really great ideas there from Frankie and Marco about how you can encourage your MSP to vote in favour of the assisted dying bill when it goes through the Scottish Parliament. Thanks for listening to the Humankind podcast and thank you to Humanist Society Scotland for handing over the reins to me for this episode. If you believe, like I do, that terminally ill, mentally competent Scots should have the right to end their life before their suffering becomes unbearable, Please make your views known to your MSP and please feed into the consultation process. Details of how to do this can be found in the podcast description, as well as more information about Dignity and Dying Scotland and Friends at the End. There's also details about where to access support if any of the issues discussed in this podcast have affected you. If you've got any questions, comments or ideas for future episodes, you can email them to podcast at humanism.scot, tweet them to at Humanist Society, or follow the Society on Facebook at at Humanist Society Scotland. This episode was produced by Julia Candusi and Kerry Sutherland, with huge thanks to Andrew O'Hagan, Reverend Scott McKenna, Fraser Sutherland, Sarah Drummond, Victoria Burns, Zoe Black, Brian Ego, Frankie Bennett, Marco Biaggi, and me. Mm-hmm.